Hi, Alex. Hi, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to uh, talk with you and give some knowledge and insight to your listeners. Perfect, perfect. Um, thanks for that. Thanks for coming down for the podcast. Um, belated Independence Day. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, we just cele- celebrated our July 4th, our independence. So there were a lot of fireworks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, so how's everything in the U.S. right now? Well, I think that's kind of a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everywhere is everywhere in the world is struggling right now because of this pandemic. I know that, you know, India is having some pretty big issues uh, and um, we're doing as well as can be expected. Things are starting to potentially take a better turn. I'm hearing from the science and the doctors that are kind of like talking about it and the science that's coming out and the research that I'm reading. So hopefully we've turned a positive corner and the vaccines are starting to take effect and we're starting to be able to get back to some semblance of being out in crowds, going to sporting events, things like that. Mm, have you been to any recently? I have not. No, the last sporting event that I attended was a, an NHL game back in the very beginning of 2020 before wow. we shut down here in the United States. Right. So I'm, I'm ready to go to some NBA games, some WNBA games, but I'm not quite confident yet. And so I won't be attending any of those probably until next year. Mm -hmm. Do you follow the WNBA? The WNBA? Yes, I do. I actually just got off a call with uh, a team that is highly ranked right now in the season. So I'm really excited for them. I do follow the WNBA. Uh, That's great. Uh, It has a lot of catching up to do in in India as well, because... In India, we just follow the NBA in general. Mm. So the men's uh, game, but uh, I, mean, I don't think I know a lot of people who... Uh, I, I, is it pretty popular in the US though? Well, I like to always give answers with statistics. So the WNBA just celebrated its 25th anniversary mm-hmm. and viewership is higher at 25 years in than the NBA's viewership was at 25 years in. So the WNBA is actually growing at a more rapid rate than the NBA did. Mm -hmm. So I like to lead with that because while some people say, well, there aren't as many viewers for the WNBA as there are for the NBA. Well, of course there aren't. It's not Mm -hmm. as old, number one. And number two, um, these teams and sponsors and partners are finally starting to see the value in supporting sports where women are playing. I don't like to call them men's sports or women's sports because they're the same exact sport. It's just the gender of the individual that is playing on the court or on the pitch. So Mm -hmm. in basketball where women are playing, these sponsors are starting to recognize the value and the viewership. So the WNBA, the NWSL, 
which is the women's professional soccer league here in the United States, the NWHL, which is the women's professional hockey league here in the United States. They're all seeing exponential explosion and growth in both viewership, sponsor dollars and partnerships. So Mm -hmm. I'm very excited about that. And uh, when people say that, people don't want to view sports where women are playing. I just point them to to the statistics and say, Mm -hmm. well, actually you are statistically and scientifically wrong. (laughs) They do want to watch this. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, uh, I definitely agree. So I was, I just had a guest a few days back and I, uh, I I mentioned it to him that uh, I asked him like, why don't people watch? The thing is you need to take the first step, right? You need to, get to a game or you need to take the step yourself you have to give them a chance right it's it doesn't make any sense to just comment on um you know the women's sports in general without even giving them a chance so i feel that's the first step it's definitely important in any part of your life, not to just stereotype or judge something that you know nothing about and you haven't done the research or you haven't put in the time or the hours in order to understand it, right? And with sports, a lot of people in the United States will say that they would never watch cricket. And I know cricket is huge in India Mm. and in England and in many parts of the world. And in the United States, people like, oh, cricket is super boring. And I say, have you ever actually watched a match? I mean, have you ever actually looked at it? Have you ever seen how the fans are reacting? You know, and so that's something that as humans, we're kind of like predisposed to want to speak negatively about things we don't understand or things that we haven't experienced. Mm. And I always urge people not to do that, whether in life, in sport, in business, Take a leap, take a step, get out of your comfort zone, watch a match of cricket, watch a basketball game where women are playing, look and see calcio or soccer, you know, and see what's going on (laughs) and then make your judgment. If you still don't like it, okay, that's fine. But people saying, I don't like pizza, but you've never tried pizza. I mean, give me a break. You got to try it before you say you don't like it, right? (laughs) Right, right, right. Where did you get your interest in sports in general? Well, I was an athlete since I was young and I'm highly competitive. So it was just kind of natural for me to get into sport. Almost everyone in my family played sport as well. I had a grandfather who was asked to play both in the NFL and the MLB, but he decided to go to World War II instead. I had two uncles who played NBA Summer League who were really good. They were small college All-Americans. I have cousins that played Division I sports. So it's really in my blood. And since I'm highly competitive, I had been competing since I was very, very young outside of sport, like walking. I wanted to be everybody walking when I was walking mm-hmm. around. I was always trying to be the best in my you know, preschool class, like those types of things. So my parents knew that because of my high energy and because of my competitiveness that I should be put in some type of sport. So I was in gymnastics. I did gymnastics for a long time, competed at a high level, got oh. injured, <laughs> but knew that I wanted to continue in sport. And so that's kind of led me to 
the various positions that I've had in the world of sport from sports journalism to being a sports and esports attorney to being a sports business consultant and working with a variety of individuals and teams and companies. So I like to stay in the world of sport because sport has the ability to connect people, even though those people might not be speaking the same language or living in the same place. It really is able to build up communities and to bridge gaps that otherwise couldn't be bridged without sport. Mm. Very interesting. And you have a very, it, okay, I guess this is pretty common in uh, in the US where you've, you've chosen three different, I mean, you have your interest in sports, you've done law and you've done a business degree. Mm-hmm. It's, yes. It's like very, it's well-rounded. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I consider myself a multi-potentialite, which is a Renaissance person or a Jill of all trades. And so for me, I have a lot of varying interests mm-hmm. and I curate a life and work for myself that encompasses all of those things because being well-rounded, understanding a lot of different things helps in every industry. So I'm able to bring in my business knowledge into my legal knowledge, into my sports knowledge and be a very deep set of knowledge when I come into companies. I'm able to do a lot of different things and be successful in all of those areas. Perfect, perfect. And uh, uh, yeah, when we are going through your uh, profile, we noticed something that you mentioned, having an athlete-first mentality. So is that is that getting, you know, bringing competitiveness into whatever you do or um, could you elaborate on that? So with an athlete first mentality, when I'm in the world of sport, I've always wanted to advocate for the athletes. I'm not an agent. I did internships with agents. They were great, but I didn't like the industry of agency. It's kind of corrupt and underhanded in a lot of instances. The agents that I worked for were fantastic, but that's not really the case um, globally. (laughs) But for me, the athlete first mentality is making sure that we recognize that athletes are people first. So they're humans first. Too often uh, fans get caught up in watching sporting events and degrading the athletes saying, oh, I would have made that catch or, oh, that athlete is so stupid or, wow, I can't believe that they got in trouble for saying this thing online, right? And they kind of put them on this immortal pedestal, but they're really just human beings who happen to be very good at playing a child's game, right? At the end of the day, that's what athletes are. No disrespect, but they're very, very good at playing a game that children play right? But they're humans as well. So we have to recognize that while they play these games at a level that seems like inhuman and like extraterrestrial, they are not aliens. They are people. And we have to make sure that we understand that when we go into partnerships with athletes, when athletes are asking for trades, when athletes have a terrible game or seasons of terrible games, or if they get injured, they're people. So have some compassion like you would any other person. Just because they play a sport doesn't mean that you should be treating them in a poor way because you think that, oh, they get paid all this money. We can treat them however we want. They're not property. They're people. Mm. 
Very true. Very true. Having said that, it comes with the territory. Don't you think? What comes with the territory? The criticism, the because you because of the fans, you're able to make a lot of money. You're able to reach, you know, stardom, and you're you you're really popular. So when you don't perform, it, it isn't it the fans um, thing to criticize them and uh, you know just vent their feelings out. Well. People can do what they want. I mean, people have free will, but mm. at the end of the day, it's a job for these athletes. No one's coming to the plumber's place of work and heckling them and telling mm. them, oh my God, you didn't fix the toilet right, this and that. They're not coming into your cubicle and like berating you and telling you that they hope that you die because you missed that goal, like mm. in soccer, you know, there are these horror stories and in many sports, but especially in soccer, my family's Italian where people would like wait for the goalies to come out of the stadiums and kill them. Right. Mm. So those types of things, it's like, guys, we need to take a step back and recognize that this is a job for these people, mm. these athletes, it's their job. No one's coming to your work and berating you and threatening to murder you. I mean, some jobs, yes, right? <laughs> but not the majority of jobs. So we need to recognize that. And there needs to be more advocacy in that area because people get into this like group think mentality at sporting events or group think mentality in general when it comes to athletes. And it's actually quite dangerous and detrimental. And it really is negative for these athletes' mental health. So mm -hmm. that's my view on an athlete first mentality and why it's so important to have people around these athletes who recognize that and who can educate the fan base, you heckling and screaming at these players or telling them that you hope they die. I mean, that's not going to help them play better the next game, <laughs> you know? So if ultimately you want your team to win the championship, you should probably have a more athlete first or human approach when you are talking with these athletes, DMing these athletes on social media, speaking out about them on TV, you know, they're people. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's the emotions sports brings out and the extremists from uh, the fan, fan side of things would, uh, but I've never really understood how people actually do that. Like they, go out to the DMs and message them such stuff. It's, I, I don't know what they're thinking and uh, how bad, I mean, obviously, I mean, as a fan, you understand getting extremely pissed at, you know, at players from your team if they make stupid mistakes in big games. But you, it just, I, I don't know how fans have the, the audacity to actually go to the DMs and um, message them such stuff. Exactly. It's, it's a game at the end of the day. Like I said, it's, it's a game that you learn to play as a child. So the fact that people are getting so riled up that they want to threaten to murder these athletes and their family mm -hmm. is crazy. Like if you messed up at your job, let's say you're, you know, I don't know, a secretary or something or an executive assistant, or a CEO even, and you mess up at your job, like, oh, you didn't 
negotiate the best contract or you didn't get the best deal here or there. And if people are literally sending you messages in your DM, like, I hope you die and I want to murder your family. Like, I mean, <laughs> come on, that's insane. And sometimes it happens because people are crazy, but it seems to be more readily accepted in the sports industry because people veil it as, oh, well, they were just really heated and passionate because they really want to win X, Y, and Z, but that's not an acceptable justification to say that you want to murder these people or you hope their family dies or you hope they get hit by a car. I mean- that's, that's never justified in any situation, but in sport, people seem to try to justify that bad behavior by just saying like, oh, well, that's what sports brings out in people, but that's not acceptable. Right. And along with that, I feel, you know, the meme culture where somebody does, you know, makes this a really bad play or, um, you know, makes a mistake, the memes that go out, the trolling that happens, it it can completely destroy the mental health of the person if the athlete does view it, right? Because what I've noticed is memes have a huge potential, a huge ability to change perceptions of athletes. So regardless of, uh, I, I don't remember, yeah, J.R. Smith, I guess. So regardless of how good he is, because of the memes you know, that were put out after he... Uh, I don't know if you were following it, but after he made the wrong pass or something of that sort a few years back, the whole impression of him is that he's a stupid player. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those things, they're very ridiculous to me because at the end of the day, everyone needs to have tough skin, whether you're an athlete or not, because right. you need to recognize that people are going to be rude and disrespectful and mean. But people should recognize that their words, their actions, things that they post out online do affect people in a negative way. And in some cases, something bad happens to, let's say, the athlete. The athlete maybe commits suicide or tries to harm themselves because of messages they've been receiving or threats that they've been receiving. Mm -hmm. People need to recognize if they're sending those to that athlete, they might be criminally responsible. I don't know how it is in India, but in the United States, they might be criminally responsible if someone hurts themselves because they're getting this bullying or this uh, harassment online. It's illegal, right? So people need to recognize, is this going to do more harm than good? Do I really need to talk crap about this athlete online or should I just vent my frustration, scream a little bit and move the hell on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned that you worked with agents. Um, are there good agents though? Are there good sports agents? And what differentiates them from the bad ones? So the, ath- the agents that I've worked with have been wonderful. So yes, there are phenomenal sports agents out there. And it depends on what sport you're in and it depends on what country you're in and what the leagues are. And if you have a collective bargaining agreement, if you have to be licensed to be an agent. So there's a ton of things that go into being an agent, following the rules, being a good agent or a bad agent, but that's also subjective. So for me, I consider a good agent, an agent who is 
doing what they can for their client, who's getting the best deals for them, helping them build their personal brand, their business, making sure they're getting them the right contracts, putting them in the right positions to succeed at the clubs that they're in. Other people might consider a good agent, someone who gets you the best monetary deal. But for Mm -hmm. me with the athlete first mentality, it's not always just about the money. Sometimes it's about the mental health, the right fit, just like anyone looking for a new position or a new job. It's about fit. Sometimes you'll take less money because you like your boss or your coach or Mm -hmm. the owner of the team or the CEO of the company, right? So for me, a good agent is an individual who is making sure that the entire health of the player and the entire career and personal life of the player is being taken care of to the best of their ability making sure that these athletes are in the best position to succeed both in life and in work. Would agents do that though, if it ha- if it would have to compromise with their pay, with the commission? Well, it's kind of the same question for anyone, right? Any type of person, a salesperson, an agent, an attorney, sometimes you have to turn down money in order to make sure that you are living the core values that you have for both your business and your life. So for me, for example, I run a sports consulting business, a strategic sports consulting business. I don't accept every person who comes to me who wants to be my client. I have an ideal client and I have an ideal company client as well as individual clients. So if someone comes to me and they want my help, but they don't fit within my core values, if they're not someone that I want to work with or that I think would be a good fit for me, then I'm not going to work with them. So Mm -hmm. it's similar for agents. If they have a strong core and a strong core value and they have an ideal client, they've taken the time to determine who their ideal clients are, then just because someone comes to them and it's like, oh, I want you to rep me. Does it mean that they're going to say yes? Does it mean that they're going to make less money? Potentially, but in the long run, if it's not their ideal client, they're probably going to lose money. They're probably not going to enjoy it and their mental health is going to suffer. So athletes would do well to make sure that the agents that they're talking to have their best interest at heart. And agents would do well to make sure that they're only representing athletes that they can actually help that would actually fit within their ideal client. Right. When you mention players' interests, what if the player isn't too happy with what the agent is suggesting, but the agent knows that it's for the player's best interest? I mean, that happens a lot. It happens as an attorney. You know, I'm an attorney as well. Sometimes mm-hmm. the advice that I give to clients, they don't want to hear. But if you trust your attorney, you trust your agent, and they're giving you advice, you should recognize that more likely than not, that advice is in your best interest, right? So that's why it's so important that you build a trusting relationship with those who are representing you so that you can recognize that while it might not be the information or the suggestion that you want to hear, it is what's best for you in the long term. But you should have an open dialogue with those individuals as an athlete to say like, hey, this is making me uncomfortable. I don't really feel like I want to do this. Why are you suggesting this? 
right? And if you're able to have that open communication, then at least both sides are going to be kind of geared with the best knowledge possible so that they can make the best decision for themselves. So what do athletes ideally try and look for during these negotiations with different clubs and, you know, basic contract negotiations? What, should, what, what do you think they should consider? I mean, I know money is an extremely important part of the equation, but apart from that, Yeah. So good work-life balance, right? What do the facilities look like? Do you guys have great team doctors? What are the owner's mentality on players? Are they known to be like the Sterlings of the world? (laughs) Are they known to be like the Mark Cubans of the world, right? Are they fantastic or are they terrible? Mm -hmm. What is the culture like at the club? What are some of the core values there? How do they treat their front office staff? What do players who leave the club say about that club, whether it's mutual parting or not mutual parting? It's also very important to know what some of the perks are at your club. You know, there are sub clubs that have phenomenal sleep health programs where they come in and they redo your house and they make the locker rooms more comfortable for making sure your circadian rhythms are working, right? They come in and they do sleep health in your house where they like set up your sleep rooms differently, right? There are so many things to think about. Also, how are they going to treat your family? If you're having to move to another country or you're having to move to another city, are they providing you housing? Are they providing you vehicles? What does your family think about this? Do they have a strong program where they're actually making sure that you spend time with your family? There's so many things to think about. You know, if you're working for, if you're playing for maybe a smaller club, I know a guy who went to Northern Europe to play hockey. And, you know, I asked him, I wasn't working with him. He was just a friend, but I asked him, I said, oh, did the club provide plane tickets for your family and friends to come visit you during the season? Mm-hmm. And he just looked at me and he said, was that something I could have asked for? You know, so it's things like that where it's like, yes, you could have asked them. They could have said no, but you could have at least asked them. You know, sometimes if the money isn't as much as you were expecting, which happens in some of the um, division two and three teams and some of the lower leagues, then you can ask for things that maybe aren't as expensive to the club in terms of dollars, because maybe they have a partnership with an airline and they can get you really cheap flights, right? Or perhaps they have a partnership with an apartment complex. They give you free housing, right? So those are the types of things to consider. Just like anyone negotiating an employment contract, you want to ask, what is the entire package that I'm getting from my salary to any potential bonuses for good play, both individually and from a team perspective, but then also what are the non-monetary partners doing? Am I gonna get all my clothes provided for? Do you have a partnership with, I don't know, a furniture store? You know, I mean, (laughs) those are things that are really important to think about and talk about. And hopefully if you are represented by an agent, those are the things that they are making sure fit in line with what you want to do. And if you're not working with an agent and you're an individual athlete that kind of is doing your own thing and advocating for yourself, you should really think about what you want, what your ideal situation is, 
what your next ideal situation is and what the bottom end of what you would accept is. And never just say yes to the first offer. Uh, in most scenarios, you want to come back and be like, this is fantastic. Thank you so much. Is there any room for you know, additions here? I would love to get a bonus if I play well in this way, if I get this many saves in a game, if I have a clean sheet, if I get this many buckets, right? So talking about it in that way and being very open and professional and advocating for yourself in that way is very important as kind of a solo athlete without an agent. And then from the agent perspective, you should really be trying to be as creative as possible with teams in getting the best deal for your players. And that's something that I have helped athletes with in contract negotiations to structure their contracts and their deals in a different way and kind of taught them how to do that. Because at the end of the day, I want to empower the individuals that I consult with, the athletes and the companies to be able to do these things in an empowered and clear way on their own as well if they want to. Can family hamper these negotiations? Can they prove to be a hindrance. I know family obviously has the, 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 the child's best interest at heart, but do you think they should be involved in these things? I don't always think that athletes' families have the best interest at heart, if I'm being frank, because mm-hmm. we've seen time and time again that aunts of players or friends of players or cousins of players have derailed negotiations because they are being selfish. So a lot of times I see athletes surrounding themselves with people that they believe they have to help because they're quote unquote family, or they've been friends with them for a really long period of time. And negotiations trail off or the athletes ego gets inflated to a point where they're incapable of having these positive conversations with their clubs. So yes, I really think that families can actually get in the way, but if you sit down and you have these conversations with your family, like, listen, at the end of the day, I'm the one that's going to be negotiating or my agent's going to be negotiating. I'm the only one that can have these conversations laying those boundaries down with your family is going to be very helpful if you're having these negotiations, but definitely talk with your family. Like if you have a wife and kids or a husband and kids or a significant other or a mom and dad, uncles, cousins that you support, definitely talk with them and say, you know, would you come and visit me in Denmark if I had a game and the club was willing to provide tickets? You know, if they would, if all of them say, no, we wouldn't have the time to do that, then don't request that in your contract negotiations. Mm -hmm. Right. But don't allow other people other than you and your agent, if you're an athlete to derail negotiations or be the head of the negotiations. You really want someone who is skilled in the art of negotiation and contract drafting and strong in the world of sports negotiation to really be the one that you are having the in-depth conversations about before you enter the meeting where you're going to be doing negotiations, because you want to be prepared for any objections that the club is going to have, or the general managers are going to have. You want to actually set up an entire strategy of how you're going to present these things, Right. right? So it's, it's strategy at the end of the day. Are you going to be more strategic than the other side? (laughs) They're going to try and extract the most out of you. 
yes. the least possible. Exactly. And you have to recognize what your value is and be willing to clearly articulate what your value is and the reasoning behind why you are requesting certain things. And then once they get on board with that, it's a lot easier to have an easy negotiation, but sometimes clubs aren't going to be willing. I have heard and been personally involved with certain clubs and organizations who do not care about the athletes. They want Mm. to milk the athletes as much as possible, do not want to pay them, do not want to have any open dialogue or communication. They just kind of want to almost bully them into playing for the club. And some players don't have enough self-confidence to be like, nah, I'll pass on you and I'll play for someone else. So you really have to recognize that there are some front offices and general managers and clubs that really just want to use the athletes until they can not play anymore and not really nurture them or help them grow their careers. And it's unfortunate, but it's true. So you have to be very careful. I'm thinking this happens in places where the club is much, much bigger than the athlete. Well, it happens in that way, but the reverse is also true. I mean, you can see some really phenomenal athletes who get screwed over by their clubs some very famous athletes who get screwed over by their clubs or who the clubs have a terrible culture. And they're just like talking about their athletes, like they're things to buy and sell. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Clippers, you know, back in the day, I mean, some of that language that was being used in the locker room toward players by the owner, the former owner of the team is disgusting and appalling. And they're very expensive club. Right. And I would say that some of these athletes were really big time athletes and mm-hmm. this was happening to them, you know, so it can happen anywhere, whomever has the power, but also the people who are having the power, they can still be treated terribly, whether it's the athlete or the club. I mean, it's horrible. Some of the stories that you hear about athletes being mistreated by their clubs, It's unfortunate, but athletes are getting more savvy these days. And so they're not standing for it. And the rise of social media, while we talked about it previously, can be really bad for athletes' mental health. They can also use it in a way to advocate for themselves, just like the NCAA women's basketball tournament when the, The (laughs) oh my gosh, it still makes me so angry. The gym, Mm. the COVID testing, the swag bags, the food, the rooms and accommodations, all of that for the women was so appallingly disgusting. And for the men, it was like, they were literally playing in an NBA game. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Sedona used the social media at her disposal to bring Mm -hmm. to light the fact that that was happening. And now, you know, we're seeing tons of reforms happening with the NCAA. We're seeing that they just lost a case in the Supreme court of the United States. So now athletes can monetize their name, image, and likeness. So Mm -hmm. we're really seeing a lot of positive changes happening because the younger generation of athletes grew up with social media. And so they're not afraid to say, this is wrong. And I'm going to point it out. Mm -hmm. Can you do that, though, if you're contractually bound and you have it under your contract not to speak out against the clubs uh, on social? Well, it depends on what your contract says. But at the end of the day, 
if you believe that something wrong is happening and you have to pick your battles, obviously, but you know, if these athletes hadn't spoken up about their club owner, calling them inappropriate names and treating them like cattle, um, and saying racial slurs, then an NBA investigation wouldn't have happened and the owner wouldn't have been ousted, you know? So at the end of the day, sometimes you do have to speak out. So we see a lot of social advocacy being done by players like LeBron James in the NBA and pretty much every player in the WNBA as well, speaking out against social injustices, both internally within their leagues and externally. I mean, recently an owner got ousted from the WNBA because of her very racist Uh, remarks and viewpoints and language and speech. So at the end of the day, you have to determine pros and cons. And does this, is this going to do more good for me than harm? And in the end, what is your overall goal? Are you trying to elevate the space, elevate the industry, make it better? Well, then maybe you sit out a few seasons. Maybe you're a Colin Kaepernick and you got to sit out, but huge things changed. Right. So you just have to kind of weigh all of that. Right. So are these the only problems athletes face or are there apart from, you know, mental health, the, the contract stuff, are there other issues that athletes deal with? I mean, with your experience working with them? So I mean, there are tons of things we could speak hours on (laughs) the -hmm. problems, but one of the big ones that I see is building a business and a brand. So now that name, image, and likeness, collegiate athletes can monetize their name, image, and likeness. They're going to start building their personal brands and building their businesses and pro athletes have already, you know, started building their personal brands and their businesses while they're playing in the leagues. But I see that a lot of times these athletes are not thinking long-term when they're building their personal brands and businesses. So a company will come to them and just be like, oh, we'll pay you this much if you do these posts or we'll pay you this much if you're on like a regional commercial, but they don't really sit down and think of the long-term effects. So when you're building your business and I help athletes and companies build their personal brands and build their businesses, you want to build it in a strategic way with long-term thoughts in mind. Does this sponsor or this company go in line with my ultimate vision of who I want to be and my ultimate goals and my values, my core values, my personal values, my business values, my vision, my mission, does it go in line with this or not? And Mm -hmm. how much should I charge? What is my value? Because a lot of times I see companies coming in and they are quoting such low prices to some of these players and sometimes personalities within the sports and esports industry as well, not just players, but like streamers and things like that. And they're like, oh, well, but I should just be happy that someone's interested in sponsoring me. Mm. And that dilutes your brand at the end of the day. So I see a lot of times athletes who haven't worked with someone like me or doesn't have an agent who has an athlete first mentality, not building their brands in a way that's going to be either sustainable or profitable in the long term. And that's something that you want to make sure you're able to profit off your business, your name, image, and likeness. You're building a strategic business for a long time for like your family and your family's kids and your kids' kids, right? Generations. Like that's how you want to build your brand and your business. You don't want it to just be like, oh, well, I was a TikTok star for five minutes. 
Like that's mm-hmm. not going to help you in the long term. You're not going to be able to retire off of that. How how do you how you convince them? Considering the short term benefits can be pretty good. Well, you talk to them about the athletes that have not looked ahead mm. and that most of them are broke now. Right. Mm. So a lot of pro athletes make, make money. They accept the sponsorships. They spend money. They're not thinking strategically because they're of the mindset that like the money's always going to be there. I don't need to build a business. I don't need to build a brand. I have Instagram. I have Twitter. Mm-hmm. And then their Instagram gets hacked or their Instagram gets taken down. Right. And they end up not being able to monetize anymore because they don't have their Instagram following or their Twitter following. They didn't build a website. They didn't have, you know, consulting services that they're providing. They're not setting up their business in a way where they have price points that make sense and services that are diverse, not just writing books or doing podcasts monetarily. Like they're doing a ton of different things. When, the, when you talk to them about that and you're like, oh, so do you know that the majority of athletes when they're done with their playing careers are broke and they're mm-hmm. working like nine to five jobs? When you talk to them like that and you, rec- you give them the reality of what, it could, what could happen, right. they're much more amenable to being like, oh, yeah, maybe I should start thinking about this. And I'm like, oh, really? Should you? Oh, okay, <laughs> cool. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we came to that conclusion together. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. Women, we spoke about women in, uh, we spoke about the WNBA. Um, women's sports is on the rise. The, I mean, we, I don't follow a lot of what's going on in the US, but I know Megan Rapinoe has been making waves in what mm-hmm. she's doing. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts? I agree. She is. Yeah. Uh, women are on the forefront of social advocacy, criminal justice reform, community outreach, community engagement. I mean, the WNBA, they recently announced that a few of their teams are actually going to be partnering together and doing charitable, charitable fundraising when they play each other like they're going to be having i believe it's the atlanta dream and i can't remember the other two teams but they're going to have essentially like charity days when they're going to be playing each other and they have particular charities that they are going to be donating money to and doing work for so bringing awareness of sports where women are playing builds up your community as a whole, it kind of like raises the standard of how it's acceptable to treat women and minorities, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of times, you know, people say, oh, it's, it's just a game. Yeah, it is just a game. But the work that they're doing outside of the game to bring awareness to inequalities is huge. It's so important. And one of my favorite quotes comes from Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was a Supreme Court justice on the Supreme Court of the United States for decades. She was a huge advocate of women's rights, reform of all sorts, reproductive rights and reforms. And she said, 
women belong in all places where decisions are being made. It shouldn't be that women are the exception, Mm -hmm. right? So for her, she was one of the first female Supreme Court justices ever in the United States. So for me, women and minorities belong in all the places where decisions are being made. They belong in all the sports. They belong everywhere. And so this sport is a microcosm of the world as a whole. And so if things are changing for the positive in sport, then more than likely things are changing for the positive in the rest of the world as well. So that's why I'm such a strong advocate of making sure that women and minorities, both in sport and esport, have a voice and are actually being uplifted. And they're seeing people like me, <laughs> I'm a female, and seeing people like me being successful in the industry. It's very, very important because if you don't see someone that looks like you in certain positions, you mm-hmm. think that you don't belong there. Right, right. So uh, you mentioned esports. How's yes. that going? It's good. I actually had a couple clients recently from the esports industry. It's a burgeoning mm-hmm. industry. I got interested in it a few years ago because I saw a lot of similarities between some of the minor leagues in traditional sport and esports, mm-hmm. some differences in terms of things that they were working on, issues that they were facing. But I also saw that esports was utilizing technology really, really well. And I saw this before the pandemic. And I said, man, traditional sports are really not capitalizing on the technology that's available. Then the pandemic hit, sports in the United States and around the world were paused. Games weren't being played, but esports was fine. I mean, they took a little, there was a little bit of a hit in terms of revenue, but they pretty much immediately recouped that and uh, were able to still have tournaments and still have matches and still make money. And their athletes were still playing games. You know, so it was really interesting. And I said, you know, I should probably get involved in this before the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, I doubled down on that. And uh, it's been really fascinating. I've done panels and presentations on esports. I've done it to attorneys, entrepreneurs, all different audiences. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really excited about the potential that is in esports. Do they get the same amount of respect or uh, and can they build a personal brand that is as respectable as an athlete playing a traditional sport? Esports athletes have huge brands. Some of these people making millions upon millions of dollars with their personal brands mm-hmm. and having huge sponsors. So there is a lot of money in esports and gaming and I mean, so many traditional sport athletes also play esports and they watch esports tournaments. They go to esports tournaments. They're friends with professional esports players, right? So, yeah, I think that it is quickly becoming super cool to be in the esports industry and to be a pro athlete in the esports industry. So, I'm I'm here for it. It's really cool when you have major professional traditional sports athletes saying on TV that they're like, oh, I hope this press conference doesn't run long. I need to go home and watch this esports tournament, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So those types of things are really cool to see uh, because it's just a natural transition for fans to, who are interested in traditional sports to be interested in esports. I mean, right. there are titles that are 
sports specific titles, right? There's NBA 2K, there's Madden, but then there's also non-sport related like Call of Duty, mm-hmm. right? And Dota and all these different things. And so it's it's just another area where it's entertainment and competition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you play any? I, when I was young, <laughs> younger, I did. Um, I played uh, something called Jill of the Jungle, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, Donkey oh, Kong, okay. Mario Kart, Mario Brothers. <laughs> so yes, right. now that I, since I got out of college, I haven't really played a lot. I mean, I've played, I've done, you know, some games on my phone, but I haven't done any like major titles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do find it really fascinating when people are super, super good. Like with Mario Kart, I was always terrible and I didn't understand the dexterity <laughs> that was involved yeah. in being able to be really good at it. And so it kind of like, kind of pisses me off, I think, which is why I don't play because I'm not super good and my yeah. competitive nature <laughs> makes me angry that I'm not good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, no. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, you see a lot of these athletes spending eight to 10 hours a day just uh, honing their craft. Uh, you know, be, I mean, it was seen uh, for, it was seen, um, you, you'd see traditional athletes do that for traditional games, but um, it's crazy how these e-sport athletes train as well. Agreed. And they have huge facilities and complexes where they train. They do optical training where they do special training with their eyes to make sure Mm -hmm. that their eyes have a lot of dexterity. They do hand training. They do weights. They have certain nutrition plans, sleep schedules. I mean, it's pretty much exactly like traditional sports athletes. There's just not as much emphasis on, you know, cardio and strength as -hmm. there is with traditional sports athletes, but everything else is pretty similar at least with the very high level uh traditional uh, esports athletes and yeah. complexes with the really high level ones mm-hmm. okay esports but you're into writing books i've i, I noticed that you've authored a few books yourself how, yes. how do you do that yes yeah, so Like I said before, you know, I'm also a journalist. I've worked for USA Today, sports media groups, NFL wire sites for uh, almost six years now. That's insane. Wow. So Mm -hmm. almost six years now. And so my father's also an author. He wrote Mm -hmm. a book called The Bone Handled Stiletto, and he's about to release an actual book series as well. So I'm really excited about that. It's a mystery series. Um, And so for me, I knew that I could write books, but I really didn't have a desire to write like a novel like mm-hmm. my father does. I wanted to write short books that worked with my podcast for working professionals. My podcast is called Your Potential for Everything. And it is about being a multi-potentialite in the sports industry and talents and skills that you need to succeed. And so I wrote books for each of the series. So I did a series on esports, and I'm going to release a short read on that. I did a series on working from home and networking, and I wrote books on that. And they take about an hour to three three hours to read cover to cover. And they're basically just chock full of a lot of tidbits and pieces of advice that you can implement right away. Just like my podcast, it is Mm -hmm. really about like, if you want to learn about something, you want to learn about side hustles and entrepreneurship and how to start your own business. Great. Go to my side hustles series, buy the book, and you'll be able to implement 
what we talk about in a way that makes sense for you so that you can build your own business. Right. Mm. Um, so it's really exciting because I enjoy interviews like this. I enjoy being a host. I enjoy writing. So it just made a lot of sense. Mm, perfect. Where can, where, can they find, where can they find these books? Uh, is it on Amazon? On yes. So you could also, yeah, it's on Amazon. The books are on Amazon, but you can also go to yourpotentialforeverything.com. I have my books there. I have the podcast. I also have all the services and con- consults that I give. Um, so you can also book a 45 minute consult with me. We could talk about building your business. You can come to me with any questions that you might have. If athletes are looking to understand how to build their personal brand, or they're interested in being trained on how to negotiate contracts, that's where you can also find a way to schedule with me on my website, look at my books, look at the podcasts and, um, yeah, that's the best way. So your potential for everything.com. Perfect. That's your Instagram handle as well, right? Yeah, that's my handle on Instagram. And then on Twitter, it's your potential, the number four. And then on LinkedIn, yeah, I actually don't know what my LinkedIn is, but because <laughs> <laughs> it's those weird like string of numbers, right. but you can look me up and you can follow me. You can find me, Alex Sinatra. Uh, you can find me and follow me on LinkedIn as well. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, well, yeah, Alex, thanks a lot. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, I, I think we got in touch a few months back and yeah. then um, a lot of stuff happened, but thanks for coming down for this though. Of course. Thank you so much for having me and reaching out to have me on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. And it's really cool to be talking with somebody from India on this podcast, you know, (laughs) technology, being able to utilize it well. I love it. Yeah, definitely. And uh, one thing with with the podcast is we get to learn a lot of different things from another country's perspective. And the uh, yes. U.S. is a giant when it comes to sports, right? And I, I really feel it can, you know, the podcasts like these can bring a lot of value uh, to Indian listeners, you know, to take, to take, to understand things from a different perspective. I agree. The more that you know about other cultures and countries and sports, the better you're going to be in terms of being a global citizen. So I'm happy to share the knowledge that I had with your listeners. And, you know, if they want to follow me on the social media platforms, if they have questions, and again, you know, if they want to book a 45 minute consult with me because they want to learn how to build a business in the U S in the sports industry or whatever it is, go to my website at your potential for everything.com. Perfect. We're going to have all these on the show notes. So guys, um, on the show notes, you'll find, you get all the links. Uh, thanks again, Alex, and take care. Of course. Thank you so much.